0: Hello and welcome into Winging It, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm your host, Annie Finberg, joined by number 15, Mr. Vince Carter.
1: BC's in the house.
0: And let me just say this before I introduce our guest. Say it. It is my job on this show to like, you know, gas up our guests, get them excited to come on, make them feel good and stuff. So I always, you know, kind of hype them up. But this guest needs no hyping up. She is the absolute goat of broadcasting. Like, I am so excited right now. I could probably scream. A pioneer, a trailblazer, Hall of Famer, Doris
2: Burke. Hello, YouTube. What an introduction. (laughs) If I lack confidence, I'm coming right to Annie. Yes. (laughs) Please do. Oh, my
0: gosh. I am so excited about this. I think my mom texts me once a week. When are you going to get Doris on the pod? She heard you talking about Vince one time and how big of a fan of his you were. And she was like, you got to get Doris. You got to get Doris. <laughs> so I am so excited. Before we jump into this, I want to say I only remember being starstruck two times in my life. Once when I was 13 and I met the Blue Man Group and I couldn't form words. It was really weird. <laughs> and the second time is when I met Doris at State Farm Arena. Bob Rathman introduced me to her and I could not form a sentence like I I just stood there silently. I was like, nice to meet you. And then I stood there. I, I couldn't. I was like, Annie, just say something. And I That's couldn't dope. say anything. So I'm so happy to have you. I think the computer makes this a little bit more comfortable for me. So I appreciate you, Doris.
2: Oh, you're a sweetheart. Seriously. Thank you very much.
0: So how are you? Before we got into this, you said you are in the bubble. You're in a bit of a different zone than the players. So just tell us a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, you know, it's it's different. Obviously, I'm not uh, in direct contact with the players or coaches. All our meetings with them are via Zoom. And so our quarantine is shorter. We're tested twice a week, not every day. And uh I think they have some activities over there. Um you know, ours are limited, but you know, this afternoon after our meetings with coaches, we're gonna play at least nine holes of golf just to sort of pass the day, which is kind of nice. Uh so different ways to keep your sanity inside the less restrictive bubble.
1: <laughs> see, Annie?
0: golf. How about there
2: that? There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Doris, do you, how often do you play goal? Uh Well, do you mean here in the bubble or if I'm Just at In general. Point? In general. I try to play once or twice a week if I don't, if I'm off completely from the NBA. Oh, yeah. So, That's awesome. Yeah. I'd like to see goal. a round of
0: the dunking goat, Vince Carter and the life go, Doris Burke, play golf. I
1: Absolutely. think we should make that happen. For sure.
2: As long as he doesn't mind a bit of profanity, then we're good.
1: Oh no, is all good. <laughs> that's, that comes with golf these days <laughs> for people, trust me. <laughs>
2: um,
0: so you're in the bubble. How long have you, you've been there for quite a while now, right?
2: Yeah, so I arrived on July 23rd. After about two weeks, uh, you, I got a brief break, about three days. You know, they tried to rotate Jeff Van Gundy, Mark Jackson, myself, and then the play-by-play guys, Dave Cash, Mark Jones, Mike Green, every couple of weeks. There was a stretch where I went a month straight here. Uh, I took about a week off because my daughter was married uh, a week ago, or a a Sunday. So has it been a week? I don't even know. I'm lost. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know what day it is. It's fine. Me and her new husband are in Bora Bora, but uh, ESPN was kind enough to give me a week off uh, to allow me. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it was really... You know, it's not easy. I don't think if you were planning a wedding um, and had to make a decision about whether to go through with it, we were going to have, you know, kind of a pretty pretty sizable one, maybe 150. and It ended up being like nine of us. Wow. Um, but to be honest with you, it was wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful. So, you know, and then I just arrived back and uh, I'll finish out this final month, which, which feels like a dead sprint. On radio, we're doing both the East and West finals which we're working every single day. Uh, You know, we have a brief respite on Monday because I think they're slowing, trying to slow down that Eastern Conference matchup and let the West catch up a little bit. Uh, But I'm glad to be back and uh, I'm, I'm excited for what we're starting to see.
1: But I'm sure for you at the same time, getting a little break kind of outside to get out of the bubble and breathe what we can consider the normal fresh air Uh, Well, maybe not so normal, fresh air. You guys would probably have the fresh air. Um, I'm sure that was a relief, but it's kind of weird because, like, when you go back, you have to kind of start over.
2: Yes. It's so true, Vince. It's such a simple thing, but going to the grocery store or going to Target, I was relishing the opportunity. You know, I didn't mask, we stayed distance, but just having a bit of normalcy in your routine. It felt so joyful. So yeah, it was nice. And then you come back and you feel a little bit refreshed. I will say this, Vince, like, I understand when I hear these players talk about, you know, how hard this is, what a grind it is. It is is so unusual. So you're watching these games unfold and there are all these tense moments, big shots, big defensive play, and there's no crowd to feel it. Or, you know, one of my favorite things in an NBA playoff game is, and I've said this and you could speak to it and I'd love your take on it. Um, when you walk into an NBA arena, as soon as you sort of hit the parking lot, there is an air of tension, of expectation, of excitement and enthusiasm that I have often said is almost tangible. Like you can reach out and touch the energy of a playoff arena. That's different here, Vince. Um, so like, you, you know what I'm talking
1: about? Absolutely. It's kind of like walking into, I, 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 look at it, like you said, I, you know, it gets, gives me chills now. Cause I think about walking into a playoff game and you, 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 you see the game before it happens and you can feel the energy, whether you're at home or you're on the road. So you walk in, it's like, oh, it's going to be crazy in here, but on they're on our side or they're going to be against us. So it's only 12, 14, whatever our team. So yeah, when you walk in there now that, you know, that tense moment or, the butterflies or the overexcited you know and the joy of being in the playoffs and being the feature team teams at that moment is one thing and and I just can't imagine I I kind of look at it like walking into maybe a summer league game you know uh, but not not a summer league in Vegas
2: <laughs> no. a summer league summer in league Orlando in <laughs>
0: oh. or Orlando. yeah or, or
1: you know just where it's not as many people and it's just kind of controlled. That's that's the vibe, you know. I'm, I'm obviously I'm not there, just seeing it, but that's the kind of the vibe because I know they're trying to pump in the sound and in the, the fan noise. But I can't imagine, and, and for them, they don't get that opportunity. You know, a lot of people, you know, some people, you, you know, you hear the outside noise, it's like, yeah, they're they're making all this money. But yeah, it's that's one thing, but the other thing is they've been in there for a very long time and they don't get that break. They don't get a week, two days, three days outside of the bubble to just be normal and get away from it. They're get away they're the getting away from the basketball for them is like going fishing
2: yes
1: <laughs> or sitting your room for those like rondo says I, I i he just sits in his room and he, he watches film which is great but sometimes how how, how would you get away from that because you're getting away is walking around the campus to see <laughs> your opponent yes, possibly right you or know, so it's just or the
2: same sites over and over and it's absolutely it's an interesting challenge and then the other part of that whole thing, Vince. And I'm curious about your take on this is, you know, you see a young guy like Tyler Hero, who's an incredibly confident kid and his demeanor and the way he comports himself feels like way beyond his, you know, 20 years or whatever. The shot making of young players, do you you think it's influenced at all by the environment here? By the fact that, as you say, you don't feel 19 to 25,000 people not wanting you to make a single shot. Correct. I, that, you know, because I often hear, you know, you and, you know, Charles Barkley and all these guys talk about the others and not, you know, the role players sort of succeeding at home and not being as influential on the road. Tyler hero seems like a kid who's going to want to take and make those shots anywhere or young man. Um, but I just wonder about the shot making here, and I, you really could say that about the players too, because a lot of them will say this is like shooting in an open gym.
1: Absolutely, you, you have to be a special kind of player, and I think once you go through it enough times, you're numb to uh, 19,000 fans against you. But until you go into that or or go against that, and it's like it's one thing. It's like, oh, well, he was the man, he was this in college. Totally different atmosphere in the play, NBA playoffs. So I, I, I think. With that eliminated, it makes the game easier. It makes shooting the ball easier because you're not looking behind that backboard with a minute left, and you get a swing, swing, and now you have to knock that down. And you see everybody at you with waving, you know, all of the signs and everything. So it's, it's a di- different atmosphere, and I, I think it it makes the others uh, a little more comfortable. I think it makes all players more comfortable because you could be the most competitive player. There is when we sit here and talk about it, but when you're in the moment, you want to make that shot like anybody else. But now you don't have to worry about all of the, you know, distractions that can be in the game. There's a lot of distractions that can be the, you know, kind of like the situation with with Russ. Yeah. Uh, As far as, you know, when you're in the NBA arena, it's a lot of that. It's not just one person. It's a lot of that at you and can say whatever they want as they walk by or as they sit in the first eight to 10 rows it's, it's 19,000 people, but you can still hear the first five, six rows of people. And it's so it's a little different.
0: Yeah. That's a great point. And it'll be interesting. God willing, we play playoffs with fans next year to see those guys or guys like a Tyler hero and see if all the young guys. yeah, Yeah. And see how different it is to be in the bubble versus playing against fans. You can imagine being in Boston right now that can do a number for your Ego for your shot, or you know, I've never played, so I don't know exactly how that affects you know the way you play, but I can imagine it could do a number on you. So that'll be interesting.
1: And I'll say this real quick Duncan Robinson alluded to that when he said he, uh, Giannis's uh, dunk, thunder dunk, they when they played against him, he said he goes down. He said, if we're in Milwaukee, mm. you wouldn't be able to hear in there yeah. as I come down and get the shot to shoot because now I it's it's loud and I'm still trying to focus on making this three. It's not the case now. You're you're used to the rhythm of the of of the sound that pumps through the uh the speakers and you know there's going to be limited <laughs> fans. You know it's it, it's not it's only the volume of the sound is only going to be so many decimals. Yeah. But that's it's totally different. You get it's up and down in, in an arena during a playoff game after a thunderous dunk by by Giannis. So, it, you know, he alluded to that and I think it's a lot of that going to go uh, I mean, make it's that is making the game a lot easier as well.
0: Yeah. Doris, did you think, I know Vince and I were unsure, especially myself, did you think the bubble was going to be this successful? I thought someone would catch COVID just because of how crazy this has been. I have so much respect for Adam Silver and everyone at the MBPA who put this together, but I just wasn't sure because of how unpredictable this virus
2: is. Yeah, to be perfectly honest with you, Annie, I never expected this to to make it all the way through with the number of people required here, but then also the way this virus spreads and and how rapidly it spreads and how silently it spreads and the thing that i'm overwhelmed with is two things here that are really when you try to put your mind around it you're you're like wow this is really impressive this was a massive logistical undertaking yeah for espn for tnt and for the nba i mean massive and They have done an extraordinary job in two ways. Number one, the game presentation has been as good as it can be. There is no detail that's been overlooked. And I will say this, as I have watched games in my hotel room, um, or even as I watched the Milwaukee Bucks sort of decide not to play, and I was in my hotel room sort of watching history unfold. In both instances, the play when it's a possession ball game in that historic moment I get lost in the action. Mm-hmm. I It feels good to me as a viewer. And I would be curious from my friends at home how they're sort of absorbing this this experience. And then the second thing is how they've been able to keep this safe. The testing every day, you know, the mask wearing, all of the requirements that have happened here. You know, if we could carry that over to society, it would be a, a wonderful thing. and uh, And perhaps we'd have, more success putting the virus under control. But it's, I got to tell you, you guys, it's really something, it's almost miraculous to me, to be honest.
1: Yeah. yeah. And, and shout out to all, all the people who spent time in the bubble because everybody who walked and spent time in that bubble had to buy into the protocols. It's not like, okay, no, today I'm not going to wear my mask because I'm tired of it. I'm tired. Of, I'm not going to testing today. I'm going to stay in my room. No, everybody bought into the idea of, of the rules and the protocols, and it's been seamless. And that's hard to do. It's hard to do. You're not asking about one team, you ask about 22 teams and all of the people around there. It's been It's amazing that, it's, that they're at zero, knock on wood, they continue.
0: Like you say, wearing the mask, I have to say, I watch way too much news, way too much CNN. But the thing about wearing the mask is if you can just find it in yourself to think you could save one person's life from wearing a mask, just one person, like it it won't it can't click for me how people push back so much on wearing masks and i know the nba has every player has been so respectful of this wearing their masks at all times you know being at the practice facility everyone's always masked up with gloves on it's just it blows my mind
1: yeah and it's great to see like my my daughter's in high school so uh and she's a volleyball player and and the players obviously who are playing they don't wear a mask but the players who aren't playing sitting on the sideline they wear their mask and when there's a timeout they all don't sit on the bench they stand in a circle and everyone wears their mask while the coach is giving their instructions, except for the current players, if you're not uh, checked in, but everybody. So, and in between matches, everybody wears their mask. And they bought it, in, and she's like, dad, this is kind of, it's weird, but we got to do it. And, you know, and I think for, for them, you you kind of, you make it sound a little more harsh than it may be to get everybody by in, especially at that age, you know, which was a concern for me. It's like, yeah, I would love to see her play. I'd love to see kids play. I want everybody to play, but. Everybody still has to buy in and, and go say, uh, understand what you just said, uh, Annie. S- saving, you know, wearing this mask is going to save someone's life. You know, so and, and at that age, you don't really look at it that way. Right. Of course. Exactly.
0: Yeah, it's hard It's hard to get that. Um, Doris, you mentioned watching, um, you know, the strike, the protests, all the different words that we've used, but for the Milwaukee Bucks game. And I watched an interview that you have with Scott Van Pelt, and you said – an unbelievable quote that I just want to read because it blew me away. You said, every single one of us should be asking the same question. Are we on the right side of right and truth or are we on the wrong side? Are we doing enough? I thought that was unbelievable and very powerful because I agree, but I want to know for you, what was it like to be there and to be you know, a small part of watching that all unfold? Yeah.
2: So I was in my room and because we're in Orlando, NBA TV was blacked out. And, you know, I was prepping my game for the next day. And, you know, you always have Twitter open or you have a second screen going somewhere. And so I'm watching the Orlando Magic broadcast team sort of absorb the news as this is coming down. I think one thing I would like to make clear is, and Vince knows this because of the time he spent in the league, you know, NBA players have been committed to affecting their communities prior to arriving in Orlando. And I think for many of them, this was a real, this was a real moral choice to come down and play or not. And then it was also a very personal choice. Look at somebody like Avery Bradley, whose son has some pre-existing conditions. And so he has to make the very difficult choice to say, well, and probably not difficult. I, I have to put my family first even though I'm on a team that in all likelihood is positioned to win a championship or certainly compete at the highest level. So you have those dual sort of things that you're navigating as a player. And uh, I just have an awful lot of respect. And I'll be honest with you, Annie, it gives me hope to watch these young men of this demographic be committed to positive change in society. There's nothing political about equality. And fairness. There's right and wrong. And I'm going to confess to you that it was and this is a little bit embarrassing for me, okay? Like in in 2016, I'm working on an NBA countdown show one time a week, Wednesdays. And I happen to be the only white person in the room. The the person in charge is Amina Hussein, uh black woman who's been at ESPN a long time. I worked with Avery. She's awesome. I worked with Avery Bradley. I mean, uh, Avery Johnson, Jalen Rose, and then Chauncey Billups and Jalen Rose. Our producer was Kim Belton, former Stanford player, also a black man. I've known Kim for 25 years, has been incredibly influential in my career. But the fact of the matter was, if I hadn't worked with them, as some of the things that were being said over the course of that election cycle, would have never dawned on me. would not have. It was being next to somebody who has experienced completely different life in our country than I had. And that was the first time that I set off on a journey. I happened to run into Michael Eric Dyson, obviously a a huge NBA fan, and he gave me his books. And that was the first entree into reading. Then stamped from the beginning, I just downloaded White Fragility. Like it's an embarrassment to me that I was so ignorant of people for whom I have great admiration, that they are my friends, my colleagues. And it's just, I just don't see what the political part of this is. This is right and wrong. This is humanity. Just as we should have gender equality, uh, we should have racial equality. And if you're not paying attention to the disparity, then it then it feels wrong to me.
0: You said gender equality, so that I wanna move on to our next topic, which is you being a pioneer in this field for everyone, but especially for women. And obviously, you know, there's always going to be critics of women's voices in male-dominated spaces, you know, not to name any names, but there's people out there who like to hate on women who work in sports. And I just want to know for you, you know, I have so many questions about, you know, in this area. Um, And I want to talk about the passing of RBG last night, which this won't air for about a week, but I want to touch that at some point as well. Speaking of women's equality, but for you, Doris, you have perfected your craft so well that no one can say anything about your talent or your knowledge or anything. So what's it been like for you to deal with all that and, you know, keep on killing it like you have
1: been? Well, I want to say in the beginning, you know, mostly, you know, how were you able to kind of point? Yeah. You know, that's the thing now you know, you're when you come on screen to walk anywhere. You demand, just what you've accomplished demands respect. But in the beginning is, I'm curious about.
2: When I started my career, I was covering women's college basketball. And then my first big break was 1997 because it was the advent of the WNBA. It was in a major media market in New York. And Madison Square Garden Network at the time was the very vanguard of regional sports cable networks. They were out in front of everything, high definition television, all of that. So there was a time, social media, um, where it was really more about trying to get opportunity. And I happened into a lot of those circumstances. Uh, I think one of the challenging things was with the advent of social media and the access that people, you know, had to you, particularly on Twitter. And listen, I'm not going to tell you it was comfortable or that it didn't hurt. It did hurt. Um, there were some personal, um, vicious sort of attacks on me. You know, I, I, I didn't look like Aaron Andrews, you know, like a lot of men aspire to look like, I don't know, Tom Cruise or whatever. But people would be like, if I was a sideline reporter on Dick Vitale's team, they're like, ah, where's Aaron Andrews? I'm like, well, I'm a married mother of two. And no, I don't look like Aaron Andrews. (laughs) Funny that you're subjected to those kinds of evaluations. I'm going to say this, uh, though, like most of my career has been spent in the analyst chair covering men's college basketball and the NBA. And Listen, I understood the objection, right? I had a longtime uh, college basketball writer. Um, Vince, you probably know him from your, your days in North Carolina. Jim O'Connell. Everybody called mm-hmm. him. Long time, well-known. And I remember being an analyst at the Big East Tournament. I don't know how many years ago. And God rest his soul, you know, we lost talk a couple of years ago. But uh, you know, much of the old generation he just came up to me one day and he said, you know, I want you to know that when I first heard you on a Big East game, I thought, ah, what's she doing there? And you were foreign to my ears. And so I, I recoiled, right? If something's new or different, we all tend to go, ooh, what's that? And he said, but then I listened to you and I was okay. And I've dealt with a lot of that. It's totally okay. What, what I've said many times, and this is true, and I said yesterday, It's always been the players and the coaches who've been my soft landing spot. Uh, You know, my predecessors, the Jackie McMullins, the Robin Roberts, those women who paved the path for me, they experienced a different level of, of objection. And it came from all fronts. The fact that the players and the coaches, you know, I could name any number of them, that they had expressed private words of encouragement and public affirmations of support of my work buoyed me in the moments where there were others who were loud and critical and at times really personal and ugly. And so I have always been appreciative of the fact that when the game became the conversation with players and coaches, my gender went out the window and they, uh, cause I'm, I'm a pretty strong person, I think. Um, but, but had I been, you know, absorbing all of those things in the advent of social media at the very formation of my career, I'm not tuff, I'm not sure I was tough enough to endure that. And here's what I love, Vince and Annie, about you know the Candace Parkers of the world, the Sarah Kustaks, the Malika Andrews, at such young ages, they have this strength of conviction and this care innate character and strength that I love and admire. And I'm on the back nine of my career. I've been so lucky. But I know that next generation is picking up the mantle and they are going farther. And that is inspiring to me.
1: And shout out to Maria Taylor too. Her clap back was (laughs) top five.
2: (laughs) Maria Taylor just pops off the screen. You talk about a woman who's navigating college football, women's college basketball, the NBA. Like, what sport can't my girl cover? Now breaking ground in Monday night football. Yep. And listen, I, you know, Maria is a friend of mine. And so I have heard her talk about some personal experiences where the criticisms are not just her gender. It, you know, the, the the racism that she has had to endure and has has endured quietly for some time. Uh, And the very powerful moment, I believe it was on Get Up, where she said, you know, my patience left my body when I watched that officer with his his knee on George Floyd's neck. Like, I I just was, I mean, the power of that statement by Maria was just, it was captivating and powerful. And this this is the strength I'm talking about, Vince. Like, you know, Maria Taylor will suffer no fools. And I love that.
0: Yeah, that's great. Maria is unbelievable. When I saw she was doing Monday Night Football, I'm like, she literally does everything. And because of COVID or not, all the seasons are at the same time. So I'm like, when do do you sleep? I don't know. I don't think she does. I'm not sure. But obviously, a very important question for me personally, and hopefully some of our listeners. I'm obviously... I have aspirations to be a broadcaster at some point. And I want to know, you know, when you were a young woman starting out, I know you say now a lot of the players and coaches help you to keep on. But for as a young woman who, you know, have people coming at you or didn't always say the nicest things, what advice would you give to someone to just keep moving forward?
2: Yeah. First of all, you are broadcasting. This this is repetition. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, you are broadcasting right now. You've clearly prepared. And uh, and and make sure you understand that there's no opportunity that's too small. When I started I did Providence College on radio. I can promise you the, the only person people listening were my family. Well every repetition you get to do in this business is a good thing. Listen, Annie, I don't know what to tell you. You know, this you you will navigate things as a woman in this country um, that remain difficult. You know, the pay disparity remains very real. The opportunity disparity remains very real. Look at our elected officials, look at your local and, and federal governments and our representation there, our representation of Fortune 500 companies in the C uh, level of those corporations. We, we still have a long way to go. Um, listen, I, I will only tell you this, like, you know, basketball to me has never felt like work. It is from the time I was seven years old, it too often gave me uh, probably my sense of self-worth And uh, my confidence, it gave uh, the last of eight children in a very economically challenged family um, an opportunity to get an education. And that education changed my life because I think I could be a waitress on the Jersey Shore if I don't get a basketball scholarship at Providence College. You know, my parents were struggling at the time, especially when my older siblings were younger, to make ends meet. It was a little easier for me by the end of it. But, um, you know, you got to love the grind. You clearly love sports. Um, love the grind, put your head down. Here's what I've done for, for since 1990. I have put my head down, prepared for the next game and just let that be my focus. So put your head down, prepare and let the next gig you have be the most important thing you do. And look, look at Vince, how deep in Vince's career is he the guy that is in the post game getting into the weight room and, you know, Focusing on his recovery and paying attention to what he ate. And, you know, like, Vince, I assume you did not do that for any other reason than you loved what you were doing. You were passionate about your profession. What motivated you to continue to do that throughout the course of your career?
1: I love the game and I was willing to do whatever it took to, to stick around and be effective in the game. Not just to be here because of my name because a lot of people's like hey man you you know you're you're you you could do no well, I wanted to earn that position even at 40 41 42 and 43 and I knew I had to put the extra work in to just be able to compete and stay at that level so it it I mean it was kind of second nature to me because I understood those things you know how to prepare how to remain an, an NBA player on an NBA roster so uh I was fortunate enough doing that and it becoming a routine of mine, I was able to walk away when I wanted to.
2: Now, I mean, it's only been a certain um, amount of time, obviously. And this year was such a strange time for all of us in so many respects. Uh, how are you getting a sense of what life after being an NBA player is for you? And if it has it been challenging? Is it fun? Are you where are you with it?
1: It was weird, and I tell you. Um, In my mind, probably, um, I mean, it was rather quickly, but I want to say a week later, I had to put in my mind that I was done. And the reason I did that, I think it made the transition out of it a little easier. Now, once it's canceled and you don't know if it will return or not, I'm in retirement mode, getting ready to, to do my repetition and my other passions. Thank goodness for golf. Honestly, because just sitting around waiting, and thank goodness, let me say this, thank goodness I made my last shot. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and I, the reason I say that, every player who walks away from the game, whether it was on their own or because they couldn't control it, your last moment in the NBA, you're hoping, if you get that opportunity to play, you're hoping to make your last basket. Yeah, I think I would have gone crazy if that shot did not go in. For a lot of reasons, because you just don't know, will I end up in the bubble? At first, it was like all 30 teams going to the bubble. It's like, oh, okay. It was like a pleasant surprise. But if it didn't happen, I was prepared now to for life after basketball. So I, I kind of prepared myself a little different than maybe everybody felt I should. Like, hey, you know, I, I still was getting, I still was doing my workouts. I still was doing the all of the stuff that they were asking us as the players to do. But at the same time, I was like, yeah, I'll do it. And just, you know, until I hear otherwise, but the disappointment uh, of ending a career like that wouldn't have an effect on me. And it it ended up not being a disappointment. I think it's a disappointment for friends and family and fans more so than me, to be honest with you. It made the the blow a little easier ending like this. It's different. A lot of people can't say they've been there. But I felt handling this way made the transition a lot easier because if I wasn't prepared, if I didn't have in my mind of retirement and preparing uh, or conducting myself as a retired player or as my career is over, right now would be miserable for me. Watching the bubble happen would be miserable for me because in my mind, I was like, no, I I I supposed to be, I want it to be, I I should, you know, all of these things. And I'm like, no. It's okay because I was already there. And and you always said it's like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah. But when the season starts, I was like, okay. But if it doesn't, mm-hmm. I'm I'm prepared for life after basketball. And I started, you know, we started doing the podcast again. So it got me back into what you said, repetition. Got me back into things that I wanted to do for life after basketball. So it was just easy and seamless. So once it was officially over, it was kind of like, oh, okay. All right. And everybody else is like, man, this is not right. It's not fair. And You know, uh, life's not fair, but this is just the, the reality.
0: And Doris, I will tell you, you know, I know that game on March 11th was not nationally televised, so I don't know if you saw it, but it was crazy because at pretty much every single game, towards the end, they'll, they'll chant Vince Carter, Vince, or we want Vince, we want Vince, we want Vince, and and Coach will look at Vince, and Vince will, <laughs> you know, shake him off or whatever. But this game, when everyone's getting the news on their phones and we're starting to realize, like, this could be it, he puts Vince in, you know, Vince gets the ball. I think it was at the top of the key or wherever it was. And I really think the whole arena went silent. Like everyone was quiet.
1: It felt like it.
0: And then his shot went in and we were all like, oh, thank God. Because I think as much as I didn't want it to be, we knew that that could be it for Vince.
1: And Annie, and Doris, to add, to add to that, that night he originally asked me and I told him no. I said, oh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to start back. The season's going to start back soon. Don't worry about it. We were, kind of, we were losing. I was like, let these guys finish, get their reps in, whatever. As it got to like two minutes left in the game, two and a half minutes, they started chanting. And at first, I'm like, oh, like five minutes at first. Five minutes, I'm like, no, no, guys, <laughs> let these guys play. Got to two, two and a half minutes, and they were like chanting. I was like, no. And Dwayne Dedman says to me, he said, oh, gee, you know, this might be your last game. I'm like, whoa, you know what? I didn't think. I was like, yeah, you know, well, it'll come back. But in my mind, subconsciously, I'm like, oh, this might be. So when it got to a minute left, that's when we're, everybody's standing up in the corner and coach looks at me and I, I kind of look away like, don't do it. <laughs> but yes, I kind of wanted to. And, and what, 30 seconds left? He looked at me again. He shook his head and he was like, and I was like, all right. And I tell it, it was chilling from that point to checking in. You see 20, Plus years go through your mind, and then you step on the court. Uh, R.J. Barrett was like, "Man, congratulations!" Like you know, everybody kind of could see the writing on the wall. But I, meanwhile, I'm sitting here like Trey Young is like, "We're gonna get you the ball, and, and so you can shoot it and end your career." And I'm just like, "Okay, please make this." <laughs> and <laughs> you, you know, when you're in a shooting the slump, <laughs> exactly, exactly. So and that's what I'm saying. So you know, when you're in a shooting slump. And you're trying to shoot yourself out of it. You try not to overcompensate. You try not to do too much. Shoot it like you've done it before. All of these things you hear all the time. I'm saying that to myself. Like, I was over for 30, and I'm trying to get out of a shooting slump. I had just been sitting there for a quarter and a half, maybe. And I'm like, and at first I was like, yeah, man. He was like, go dunk it. I'm like, dunk what? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> dunk what? Uh, I'll shoot it. So, uh, And of all things, uh, I mean, it was just... You know, step into it, one-two, and shoot it like, you know, you're 13 for 13. And I did that from the three-point line. And I'm going to tell you the one moment, and I don't think I've ever said this, the one moment that that played in my mind was 2001 against the Sixers when I missed that three-point shot to move on to the Eastern Conference Finals. And I remember shooting it, and halfway, out of my hand, halfway there, I'm like, this is good. The second half of that shot, I'm like, oh, this is long that moment played in my mind again. And when wow. I let it go, I'm like, oh, this is, but I said, oh, this is not, this this looks short. Stay up. Oh, this is good. Thank you, God. <laughs> it was kind of uh, that same moment. So it was kind of like, um, able to kind of writing that story again. Wow. Yeah. Because I practiced that shot for, you know, millions of times. And I got the opportunity to kind of, you know, erase that history in my mind in, in Dallas against the Spurs. But, your last shot, you know, of your career, you know, I just wanted to see it go in. So all of those things played in my mind. That's awesome.
0: Vince, was your shot against the Sixers was it in that same spot or was it somewhere else? Uh,
1: it was it was on that set, side of the floor.
0: Yeah,
1: it was a little higher up, but like oh. on the on um the corner of the three, and then the shot in in Dallas was in the deep corner. Oh,
0: yeah. Okay, two more things about Doris being a GOAT, and then we'll move on to talking about our other GOAT, Vince Carter. But first, I want to congratulate you because you are the first woman to serve as an analyst on the radio for the NBA Finals, which, again, you continue to pave pathways for the rest of us, and it's unbelievable, so congratulations there. And like you said, you're doing it for the East and the West, which is, you know, unheard of. So congratulations!
2: Yes, I, I appreciate it. I and uh, Mark Kesteshir and PJ Carlesimo, and I think pretty soon John Barry will be back. They have been so gracious and welcoming, and uh, it's a it's a it's been a ball. It's been an absolute ball, truly. That's awesome
0: for doing radio. Do you still get as like appearance ready as you do for TV? It's
2: so funny you ask that. No, the answer is no. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I, I put on makeup. But I reached out to the, the head of our radio department. I said, what, what's the dress code? You know, Mark sure wears an ESPN golf shirt. I just wear a nice top and some slacks or a pretty dress, whatever. But it is different. Even everything down here is different, Annie. You know, normally on a, uh, any regular season or, or playoff game, I would be in the building at least four hours ahead of time because there's makeup and I would want to go first and be prepared for coaches meetings and everything. Here, there's no traffic. There's no people to fight into the arena. And so we go over there maybe an hour and 15 minutes. We've already met oftentimes with the coaches via Zoom. Uh, we, we can't interview players. That's for the reporters that are directly near the, the players. And so those are pre recorded. So everything about life here is, is so different. You know, it's, it's been an interesting experience, but no, it's delightful to not have to be <laughs> that stressed over it. Right, um,
1: but it, that spoils you. Uh, what do you think as far as the preparation that you're typically used to? Yeah, and then you get here for however many months, and now this is the new normal. And at some point, you're going to go back to the I have to be there four hours. It's kind of going to yeah. throw you off.
2: Oh <laughs> yeah, yeah, without a doubt. But I'll tell you what we're missing here—that's invaluable to me as a broadcaster. Um, you know this, Vince, because, you know, I think you and I have done this at a game where even if it's just a casual hello, how are you? But I might have a question for you as it relates to basketball or a story that's just come out. And there's these interactions, Annie, and you know this because you've seen it, you know, and it might be an hour and 15 minutes before the game. It could be, you know, as the guys come out for that final warm-up, you can touch them just briefly, meaning you could say, hey. I had this coverage here or, you know, Jamal Murray coming off those dribble handoffs. What's that like? You know, all of those moments that for me as a broadcaster are so important, you know, because I do it. I have to do it differently than Jeff Van Gundy, Mark Jackson, Reggie Miller, Chris Weber, all of those guys, they've played or coached in the NBA. And so they they do their job in a distinctly different way than I do, Right. I sort of approach my job as a fan first and foremost. I feel like because that's what I've been for for most of my life, you know. And but
1: you have played the game.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, I played obviously. So played
1: you know it, yeah. that gives you, and coach. So it gives you an, an advantage to some of the people that we hear or read on social media who coach from the comforts of their home. <laughs>
2: oh yeah, oh yeah, yes, no doubt, no doubt, no doubt. Could I ask one Annie before we move on of to course. a different? But Vince touched on something that I, it really struck a chord. And I've, again, because of the pandemic, I've not had these conversations with players. So, Vince, on that last night of the, the suspension of play, I was in Dallas for Denver at Dallas. And we were the last game on the air that night. And I remember just, and I feel bad because I ended up having the virus at that moment. I just didn't know it. How much a part of the conversations of the players? had this virus become at that moment were you guys discussing this how mindful of it were you did you ever anticipate that we would shut down as abruptly as we did just i was, I was so curious about this
1: so for us it started a week before the what the, was that march 11th it was march. a week before we start having those conversations on on protocols and what could and would happen if Such and such happened, different scenarios. And before the game, we had another meeting of updating on how things would work. And so when we found out about Rudy Gobert, it was halftime of our game. So we're still playing and focusing. So we had some reference and and, and a little knowledge of the virus and everything. So you hear it and you're like, oh man, this is unfortunate. Like everything else, it's just like, okay. You know, we sometimes we like it's we're in our bubble. <laughs> it's just everywhere else. And and the, you, you don't think the reality of it until the reality is in front of you. And at halftime, I remember we're warming up, Coach coming back, he said, he said, you hear the news? Uh, hear the news typically in the NBA is what? Somebody got traded? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody got fired? At half, you know, that's kind of the first yeah. thing I thought of. I was like, no, what, what happened? <laughs> Rudy Gobert got the virus. I was like, oh, man. So it's you know, it was just in the heat of, the, of battle, and we're getting prepared for the second half, so it's kind of like, man. So it's like, are we going to remove him? Whatever, whatever. As things go, you can just kind of feel it in the air. People are reading and learning about the situation while we're still playing. So I'm oblivious to all of the new findings, how it all works, what's going to happen until after the game. So it just, when it hit us, it was just like, okay. And as we're sitting there conversating on the bench, like I said, at first I'm just like, "eh, go ahead," you know. uh, If it shuts down, it'll come back. It'll start back, like you said, in in a few weeks. Yeah. Yeah. And then as it got closer to the reality, and we talk more, and and Dwayne says what he says to me. Now it's like, wait a minute, it's it could possibly be over because one of, excuse me, one of the things that was said was if a player comes up positive with the virus, the other team will have to, uh, to get tested and whoever they played prior to and the domino effect of this. And right. I think that's when it all hit, like, wait a minute, it's going to shut down for a, a while. And, you know, it could go back, you know, go, it could go on and go on, go, go on. Then you hear about Donovan Mitchell and then you know, the other teams. And then you hear, um, who was the next person? I can't remember, but it, from a different team. So it's like, okay, well, who did they play last? Right. And then now you're like, oh, wait a minute, where does that put us? And, and that's kind of how it all unfolded. And and as you you know you, from so what I knew from the last shot, all of the you know the extravaganza, the shot going in, everybody having fun. From what I learned from that moment until my final press uh, presser, I was educated a little more within the next hour and a half. So it's just, we'd gain more. And so we're playing catch-up to the rest of the world who's playing like, kind of like, you know, you guys. Well, you, I mean, well, not you, more so than the players in Dallas because you don't know what's going on because you're still focusing on your job.
2: It was interesting for us, and you make a great point because NBA players, you operate, you know, your your travel is different than ours. One of the things that my colleagues and I were talking about was how strange travel was becoming. Airports were far less crowded. You if you connected through Atlanta or Charlotte, you're going, Woo, this is empty. The morning of the game, you know, we stay at the same hotel in Dallas all the time. So you get to know the reception people at the hotel. And I walked in and it was a ghost town. You know, the woman, you know, greets me and says hello. And I said, How how is it? She goes, This feels we're so quiet, it feels like Christmas Day here, but like there's here. Oh. And it was uh, Ryan Ruco kept saying to me, um, It almost felt apocalyptic, the air Mm -hmm. around things. I had taken a call from my boss um, early in the day, basically saying, are you still comfortable traveling? Like, I think he was prepared. If I said, you know, I'm getting highly uncomfortable traveling. I think they were prepared to not make me go on the road. And I have to say, ESPN has been great about this. And I actually said, I'm fine traveling. I feel pretty safe. But one thing I did... because I was sick, I I was so exhausted. I figured it was just normal exhaustion from, you know, having gone from October to March on planes, trains, and automobiles. Uh, But I I had called, you know, our coordinator and said, do you mind if instead of flying home to Philly, I fly west and just go to the hotel and rest because my next game was the Laker game on that Friday or Saturday. I I don't remember, but whatever. I wanted to fly west and stay in my hotel. That's how tired I was. So it was
1: just a really interesting time, very interesting time. Wow, yeah, because I remember after that game, you know, just trying to separate the two, you know, like wow, this could be it, but yeah. wow, what just happened? What and happened? And it, 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 you know, I remember I was probably the last. And yeah, I think I, I, I was the last one out of the building that night, uh, and it just felt different because I was the last one to do my presser because of you know the, yeah. my situation right. and walking out. Of the building, and everybody's kind of like, yep. And it went from typically fist bumps to everybody, everybody's like, all right, because that was kind of the protocol. If this happens, here's what's gonna happen now. It's all, you know, we in our couple of practices, we didn't do handshakes anymore. It was all elbows and fist bumps or whatnot leading up until that day. So walking down that hallway and just reminiscing, but like, wait, wait, so what's going on? What did you hear? And, And comparing notes and walking outside, getting to your car nobody's around. I mean, I was the last one anyway, but what, driving around, I didn't go home for a while. Cause I'm just trying to figure out what's going on and listening to, you know, he, radio or just hearing people talk on the phone with people before I got home and streets were just empty. And it was just like, wow, what, what's going on? It, it was the lead up. And he's like, it, it felt apocalyptic. Apocalyptic. It, it, yeah. it, it, you, you know, that's exactly how it felt. And it's like, where is everybody? Typically, you know, we didn't win and start that like everybody celebrating, but you see people out and you I, it wasn't the case. And I remember going home and it was kind of like once that door closed, it was kind of like a bubble.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: The bubble started. That's right. That's right.
2: Yeah.
0: I remember those first couple weeks too after March 11th and just like when you did have to go out to get groceries and how weird it was and I remember I had to make like a mask out of a scarf because there weren't masks at that point that anyone could get their hands on. So it was such a, such a strange time.
1: How uncomfortable was that for everybody? It's kind of like you hear this and, you know, uh, uh, immediately, if you watch the news, you want the information, but sometimes the information of the news, they scare you. Like, you know, and it, it, it's it's like, I remember I'll go, uh, you know, you got to go into the, you know, before you knew you can get your groceries delivered. Cause that's not what you you did. Mm-hmm. I didn't do it. I'm going to the grocery store. So walking in and now it's kind of like people look at you like, nope, don't look at me. No, don't look at me. Like it's just it went from that and then it became a ghost town. And it's just it was um, it was just the strangest feeling.
0: So my second to last question or comment that I want to bring up, like we talked about earlier. We'll be a little bit behind on this, but obviously last night Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. I believe she was 87. But, I, you know, speaking of having Doris on the show, another absolute trailblazer of a woman, you know, setting the stage for so many women, fighting for equality for women and for everyone of all races. And I just want to take a moment to remember her and to also remind people how important now it is to vote. You have to vote. Um, And at the end, I will plug the little Hawks thing again that will make it very easy for you to register. But Doris, go ahead. And, you know, if there's anything you have to say about RBG.
2: Well, you know, first of all, I've never believed in um, having heroes. You know, I think all of us are human and have our strengths and weaknesses. And I've always believed if you put somebody on a pedestal, you know, all of us could eventually fall off. We're human, right? We make mistakes and everybody should be equal like in your mind. So I've had people I've looked up to and admired, but I would say Ruth Bader Ginsburg for my daughter and I is as close to a hero as we have. My daughter's a recently graduated attorney. She's in her clerkship right now. And, you know, someone once asked Ruth Bader Ginsburg, at what point will, you know, the appointment of women on the Supreme Court be enough? And she said, when there are nine. Mm -hmm. Meaning for You know, the first century of Supreme Court justices, they were white men. Mm -hmm. You know, how long did it take Thurgood Marshall to be named to the Supreme Court? Her legacy, her life, her toughness, her grit, perseverance that she showed. You know, just a woman of extraordinary strength. I have been trying, believe it or not, it's interesting you say that. So, that when there are nine, comment, trying desperately to find someone. My daughter once saw. I don't remember if it was an actress or somebody, I think in the public eye had a sweater with when there are nine in script across it. And I've, I've been talking to people trying to find somebody who could make me, you're on Etsy. You can see these shirts and t-shirts and sweatshirts. I want something distinctly different. She's, she's that much of a hero to my daughter and I. Um, so as much as we have heroes, she's, a life well lived. I think if all of us pass and someone were to save our lives, it was a life well lived. Mm-hmm. And to watch all of these people, men and women, you know, I, I right before I came on, I happened to see Pau Gasol paying tribute to her uh, on Twitter. So I don't, I don't know what to say. I just, I know my daughter's in Bora Bora on her honeymoon and she said, I'm so sad right now. And uh, that was my first. I went to leave for my game last night, and came across on CNN. I was, was emotional.
0: Yeah, absolutely, Vince. You have anything quickly?
1: One, well, I just one thing, real quick. Uh, for you, like we say, you're the goat. The people in the sports world, obviously, you've earned the respect and the status. How has it been for you when the outside world, entertainers, and other people recognize what you've accomplished and what you've done? Let's say, like Drake. Yeah. For instance, you know how is that? You know, for the first time when you, when you hear, it, it's like, wait, like, yeah, was it weird? Like, it was like, where is this coming from, or how did you take that?
2: <laughs> so the night that happened, I was in in my, I didn't yet have my place down outside Philly, and I'm at my daughter's apartment. She's in law school, and we're cooking dinner at her apartment. And uh, somebody was working the show for ESPN, a longtime friend of mine, said, "Hey." you know, you're about to blow up the internet. And I'm like, oh God, (laughs) what did I do? Exactly. You know, Uh, know, all of a sudden it kind of blows up on social media and I am taken aback. I am so taken aback, Vince. And my daughter is literally dying. So then we turn on the game. I believe it was Israel Gutierrez interview with, with Drake. And I just was like, oh my good God. And there was a point at which I, you know, you know, whatever, you know, we're going on about our day and we're watching the game, but we're cooking dinner. And my daughter's like, I really don't think you're grasping how big a star this is. <laughs> right, right,
1: right,
2: and what a big deal it is. And I'm going to say this to you, Vince, and I said this about, you know, you players and coaches and you being my soft landing spot. Like change in society requires everybody's participation. So the very first time I met Drake was probably a year later of broadcasting the Toronto game. As you know, we don't do that often for a lot of different reasons, but, you know, it's, it's infrequent. And, and even if we do, you're going to send different announcers up there. And so I met him a year later for the first time, and I said to him, you know, I know you didn't do it for this reason, but the fact that you showed respect to my work, I think has further changed the opinion of the casual fan toward me. And he and he, he just looked at me. So that wasn't my intent. You know, that definitely wasn't my intention. You know, but I just—it's just like when players and coaches interact with me in a certain way on camera, or if they're interacting with Kristen Ledlow or Candace Parker, whatever. Your interactions with us sends a very powerful message out to the casual fan. Like if the best players and coaches in the world are perfectly comfortable with
1: us why shouldn't you Mm
2: -hmm.
0: so thank you so much to doris thank you guys so much for listening to another edition of winging it with vince carter like we said and vince will say at the end don't forget to vote you can text hawks to 26797 and figure out your voter registration where you're registered if you're registered it's so 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 important so thank you again for listening we out
1: go vote your vote makes a difference